welcome to Storytelling. This week's guest is an award-winning author and journalist who has lived in many countries. Her third book, the novel Exile Music, was released by Viking in May 2020. It follows the lives of a family of Austrian Jewish musicians who seek refuge from the Nazis in Bolivia in 1938. This book won the grand prize in the 2020 Islands Book Awards. Her previous novel, The Ambassador's Wife, has seen many accolades. Her first novel, The Woman Who Fell From The Sky, was awarded Elle magazine's Reader's Prize in 2010. Please welcome Jennifer Still. Hello, Jennifer, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Debbie. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Jennifer, you have written an amazing book called XR Music. Can you tell us the inspiration behind this book? Absolutely. In 2012, my family moved to Bolivia, and we lived in La Paz, Bolivia, which is at about 3,000 meters above sea level, so the altitude can be quite challenging there. But very early on in our time there, we moved there because of my husband's job. He was working for the EU at the time. This was back in the halcyon days when the UK was part of the EU, and He came back from a meeting with the Austrian consul one day and said, I'm learning some really interesting history about Bolivia. And did you know that there were about 20,000 Jewish refugees who came to Bolivia during and before World War II because it was one of only three countries still offering visas to Jews who were trying to flee the Nazis? Um, by 1938, there were only three countries left who were offering these visas. So that was the, the Dominican Republic, J- Japanese-occupied Shanghai, and Bolivia. So I found this very interesting, and I hadn't read anything about it. So I looked around for books about this part of the Jewish diaspora, and I found some memoirs, some really amazing memoirs, particularly Leo Spitzer's book, Hotel Bolivia. But there weren't any novels and there there just wasn't a lot written about this population and I thought there should be because I just was imagining what it would be like to lose everything to lose your family your loved ones your livelihood your profession your home and suddenly be in this town in the middle of the Andes where you were struggling with altitude, where you didn't understand the culture, where you didn't speak the language. It's difficult enough to switch countries without having gone through all that trauma beforehand. And I was just thinking they must have had some unique challenges in Bolivia. So I met some survivors and began interviewing them. And at first I thought about possibly writing this book as nonfiction, but so many of the people who survived that time are now dead that I thought it would be difficult to put together a really complete narrative. 
and I wanted to create a narrative that would affect people emotionally, psychologically, that would move them, that would immerse them in the plight of this group of refugees. So I spent five years reporting this book. I went to Vienna. I went to Genoa, which is where my family, so the family I write about is a family of Jewish musicians. They left Europe from Genoa. The ship left from Genoa for South America. And I, of course, spent four years in Bolivia. So the inspiration were these survivors I met, including a, a man named Guillermo Wiener, who came from Vienna when he was eight years old and moved to Bolivia and talked to me about what it was like to, you know, he learned Spanish from his landlady's children. And he talked to me about how he eventually learned English from Time Magazine. He talked about his obsession with movie theaters. He eventually opened four movie theaters in La Paz and became the head of the Cinematographers Club and did all these amazing things with his life and eventually became Bolivian. And Austria invited him back at one point and he said, I will never forgive Austria for what they did. I will never go back to Austria. And he fully became Bolivian. He, you know, his name was originally Wilhelm, which he changed to the Spanish version, Guillermo. Um, so I talked to him a lot and I talked to a man named John Galanter, whose parents came from a country that was Poland and then part of the Ukraine and then part of the USSR, and I think is now part of Ukraine again. But his parents spoke Polish and they lost their two-year-old daughter and uh, their parents and everyone they knew in their village um, who were all murdered by the Nazis and the Ukrainians at that time. And they fled to Bolivia where John was born and he's still a close friend. He's a musician and I suppose that's also part of the inspiration for the book was the fact that he's a musician. And so I tend to prefer to write about people who can do things I can't. <laughs> it allows me to do those things. So I'm sorry that that's a rather long way of describing the inspiration, but but that's how it all came about. You have a journalistic background. Yes. Yeah. How did this background serve you well in terms of putting together the book and the characters behind it and doing all your research? I suppose I'm used to interviewing people, and that was probably the most important thing I did for this book was interview a lot of people. Um, even when it came to music, I did a lot of interviewing of a piano player for an orchestra in Berlin that plays nothing but 1920s music. And I wanted to find the music that my protagonist early would have listened to in her childhood. And her mother was an opera singer, but I knew that she would have heard more than opera, whatever was popular during that time. And so I interviewed him. I suppose being a journalist, you know, I knew where to find people. I knew how to contact people. I'm not at all shy about approaching strangers. I also have a very good network. So I went to the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism and I'm still in touch with most of my classmates and who are all around the world doing all kinds of jobs. And so at one point I put out a request for sources in Austria and they connected me with one Jewish woman who was living there now who could talk to me. They connected me with a Holocaust researcher there. They connected me with someone at the Holocaust Museum in the US. So that network really helped me a lot. I was also helped a great deal by my husband who speaks German. So he came to Vienna with me, as did my daughter. 
and helped me kind of navigate research there. I mean, I also did a lot of reading, so a lot of research involved reading. So I read every memoir I could get my hands on by anyone who'd lived in Bolivia during the 1940s, 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, just because I wanted to get a sense of life there. So most of those were memoirs of Jewish refugees, but some of them weren't. One of them was written by the wife of a miner, and that was really informative because she talked a lot about what food you could get. Because a lot of the times I'd be reading a memoir and I'd say, please talk to me about your food. Please talk to me about what's in the market. Please talk to me about how your stove works. And (laughs) they don't talk about the things that I really need to know. I found some information in some of the other memoirs around that time because I needed to know that butter was difficult to get or that tinned food was considered a luxury or that they couldn't get fresh meat or whatever. Those kind of details were important to me. I wanted to create the context as realistically as humanly possible. And then I placed my fictional characters in that context. And I think one of the things that meant the most to me after this book came out was two weeks after its publication, I received an email from a 90-year-old man in Florida who said, I just finished reading Exile Music and it's so close to my own experience that I just can't believe you made it up. (laughs) Who did you talk to? And that was the best possible thing to receive because, of course, I'm really writing it for the survivors, for them. And I want them to feel like I've told their story well and accurately. I think the book is very beautifully descriptive because you managed to transport the audience to that time in Bolivia. And one thing that I wanted to ask you about the character Orly, because you use a mixture of your research and myths around this character. Can you explain the thought processes behind that? I'm always interested in how people find their way through trauma and grief. And I think the arts are a way a lot of people find their way to keep moving forward. I know for me, I am not sure I could survive if I couldn't write because writing is my way of thinking and processing the world and making some sense of it. And I feel that for my characters, music was what pulled them through, but not just music, but storytelling to get back to your comment about myths and and storytelling. And I think all of us are storytellers because we all, even when we talk to our friends, we're telling a story about what happened to us on the tube that morning or telling a story about an argument we had with our husband but we are all storytellers. We do that in order to make sense of our lives. And so Orly, she uses several different arts to help pull herself forward. And and part of that is music because that's what she and her father use to pull themselves forward. You know, he takes Bolivian students and starts to learn something about Bolivian music. Orly learns a Bolivian instrument, but she also makes close friends with an indigenous girl named Naira, and Naira shares some of her Imra myths with Orly, and Orly shares some of her uh, myths and stories, and that's how they connect. Like They connect through storytelling. They're very different people. They come from very different worlds, and yet you know, Orly, when she arrives in Bolivia, the indigenous people were not treated as human. They were um, they weren't even considered citizens of their own country. They couldn't own land, and they were supposed to move off the sidewalk when paler descendants of the colonizers came 
walking along. And when Orly saw this, I mean, she'd just come from being persecuted in Vienna. And it occurred to me that a child would see that and think, that's how I was treated just now. And that's how she's being treated. And that's not okay. And that is something that she could relate to and then connected with her through stories. And those stories also helped connect Orly to her new homeland uh, because she needed to find a way to connect to where she was. And I think children are much better at this than adults. And in a way, Orly leads the way in her family because it's the easiest for her to learn Spanish. It's much harder for her parents. And she also ends up using poetry because in school, one of her teachers gives her a prompt and says, you know, pick two things that have nothing in common, nothing. And so she thinks of two things that don't seem to have any relationship. And then the teacher says, okay, I want you to write a poem that makes the connection between those two things. And that becomes a touchstone for her in the way that she tries to find ways to connect her former life and her former best friend, Annalisa, in Vienna with her current life in Bolivia and her friends there. And try to make sense of what's happened to her and who she's becoming and who she wants to become. During the research that you did, were there any surprises that you just never thought were possible? So many surprises. I mean, I learned so much writing that book. I First of all, when I was first figuring out what the parents were doing for a living, like what their profession was in Vienna before they left... I made the dad a viola player with the Vienna Philharmonic. And investigating the history of the Vienna Philharmonic, I was horrified by their history because they expelled all of their Jewish musicians, um, many of whom were sent to concentration camps or they were sent out of the country or or just fired and could never find another job and, and died. They were absolutely horrific to their and and a large percentage of I don't have the numbers in front of me, but a large percentage of the orchestra of the Vienna Philharmonic members were Nazis, even when it was still illegal to be a Nazi. And I, you know, imagine what it's like to be Jewish and playing with your fellow orchestra members who you know are Nazis. And then the Vienna Philharmonic continued to employ Nazis until 1967. And I found that shocking. I didn't know that. And then, you know, they still, you know, they didn't employ women until the 2000s. And and now I think they have like one or two token women. Um, and they're also largely white. They seem to feel that only white men can properly play music. I think they may now have an Asian or two, but they are just kind of her, the most kind of horrifically... <laughs> bigoted and racist, misogynist, anti-Semitic organization in their history. And so exploring that, you know, I felt that I had to include the names of all those Jewish musicians who were expelled from the Vienna Philharmonic in my book, which I did, because I feel like their names have been forgotten. Like we don't even know where some of their bodies are. And the Vienna Philharmonic forges on. I mean, I did go to see them as part of my research, but there just hasn't been enough written about that. And so that was, that felt important for me to include. Jennifer, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, Debbie. This was such a pleasure. 
If you would like further information about Jennifer Still and to order a copy of her book, then please follow the link in the show notes. Mm-hmm.